You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Chris, and today is extremely exciting as we're doing our second ever rank down. This time, we're talking 2018. Mathieu, Saul, and Tom are back to break down and discuss their choices of the five best films of the year. And just as last time, the structure is really simple. We will go in a circle where each of us present our fifth choice. Then, once we're done, we move on to our fourth, third, second, and finally our number one personal favorite film of 2018. If a film happens to be on multiple lists, we'll skip it uh, for the lower spots and allow the person who loaded the most to present it. This is also because as our love of the film grow, they will get more focus and more time. But just as last time, I'm extremely excited to announce that the overlaps are minimal. Of the 20 possible slots in this episode, only three are on two lists, and none are on three or more. That means we'll cover 17 films. We'll also change one thing. Last time, we did not set aside time or space to even give us little as a shout-out to our runner-ups. An absolute tragedy. So before we get into this actual full-on rankdown, we will, and don't worry, this will be quick, run down our runner-ups. So without further ado, Mathieu, kick, kick us off. What are the films that missed out on your top five? Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, so the films that missed out, the, the first one would be Mirai, the animated film by uh, Mamoru Hosoda. I really love his, uh, his films in general, especially uh, Wolf Children, but Mirai has that same warmth to it, which is a topic we've talked about a bit. Uh, yeah, it's about this boy and his sister and the classic thing of being scared of another child coming. Anyway, uh, a great, a great animated film. Then I've got First Man, which I won't get into because we talked about it on the space exploration episode already, but great film. The favorite, which we'll talk about later, uh, Her Smell, which is a, a film that I think Saul talked about on another episode as hating it. I understand that. It's a very abrasive film, especially the first part, but this kind of fall and rise narrative really worked on me, especially because of Elizabeth Moss' performance, which is just great. And then I'll also mention Want to Be My Neighbor, the documentary about Mr. Rogers, someone who I was not super familiar with, not being, you know, American. But yeah, it's a very thoughtful uh, documentary about this guy who, well, what he did on, on American TV is really uh, quite special. And it's a very um, emotional documentary, which I, I really recommend. There you go. That's my honorable mentions. All right. Thanks, Mathieu. So, Saul, I, I know we have some films you really want to shout out. Okay, so it was really hard to pick a top five and then try and find five runners up out of the 123 and a half films that I've seen so far from 2018. And a half? Yeah, uh, don't ask for that. It's going to really annoy Tom, but I'm actually in the middle of watching a Belgian film from 2018 that I've had to pause so we can do the podcast. <laughs> oh, no, this uh, is going to be shocked. It's quite intriguing so far. I don't think it'll make my top 10, but it is quite interesting. But um, anyway, I, um, I digress. So of the runners-up, I've chosen to go with a movie called Ham, D-A-M, 
which is about a webcam model who finds that a doppelganger has taken over her account and she's trying to like regain her online identity. And I just thought it really tapped well into the fears of being able, unable to control your online experience. It also was about the risks of going too far in terms of getting fame because she was doing more and more morbid things to try and get more viewers. But yeah, just a very interesting uh, horror film if you like horror. I think it's a good film for you if you like neon it's a great film also it's got a really excellent color scheme that really makes the offline world look very different from the online world with pronounced pinks purples and blues for night spot i've got a similar sort of film in a way called searching uh it occurs all on screens camera occurs partly on screens but you're searching a sort of like the whole unfriended open windows dynamic this man's looking for his uh, lost daughter and he's hacking into her social media accounts looking for clues and everything that we're seeing is occurring on a screen and it's just incredibly well done really great performances from john cho and deborah messing for eighth spot with my obsessive compulsiveness i've gone for eighth grade but it is a great film also uh just a film about a teenager who is very um worried about entering um high school from middle school without having a boyfriend uh just a very dynamic performance by elsie fisher most of her most telling moments are actually when she's diverting her eyes away rather than looking at the camera and i uh, just thought yeah the uh, actor I think it was Josh Hamilton who plays her father. Very good performance also. Very funny, really good music choices. For seventh spot, I went with The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, the Terry Gilliam film about the troubled production of a Don Quixote film. And it's got a bit of a meta quality in there. It's all about a troubled film production. And Jonathan Price is just amazing in it as an actor who's actually become deluded into thinking he's Don Quixote. Uh, after previously acting in a film that the Adam Driver character made about the Don Quixote and not about Adam Driver's guilt, but there's also a whole lot of blurring between fantasy and reality. This sits really a lot well alongside Dr. Panassus and a few other really cool films that Terry Gilliam has made. And for number six, I've got The Favourite, but again, that's a film that we will get to shortly, so I will pass on to someone else. All right, thanks all. And finally, Tom, what are the films that would have kept you up at night, sending you into a delirium of guilt if you cannot present them right now? <laughs> thanks, Chris. Uh, so I've seen 133 films from the year, and my honourable mentions, they're not in any particular order, but I've got three excellent horror films that I'd like to recommend and two weird and wonderful films that I think a lot of people would enjoy. So for the horrors, Ari Aster's brilliant film, Hereditary, that came very close to um, making it to my top five. Then we've got John Krasinski's A Quiet Place, which is the creepy film where the main characters are unable to make any noise for fear of being assaulted by these vile creatures that have taken over the earth. Then there is Gareth Evans' brilliant cult film, Apostle, which is quite a different direction from his previous work on his films, uh, his martial arts films, The Raid and The Raid Redemption. And I think it's a, it's a great change of pace for Gareth Evans with that. The other two films are David Robert Mitchell's Under the Silver Lake, which was a brilliant 
potential cult classic in the making, I feel. It's got the feel of a, a midnight movie. It's really surreal and strange, weird and wonderful. It's a great follow-up to It Follows. And then finally, there is another weird and wonderful film, Sorry to Bother You by Boots Riley. This was very dark, very funny, and goes in some very strange directions towards the end. So I highly recommend them. So I hope that you know you enjoy all five of those if you get the chance to check them out. And I'd love to hear what your numbers 10 to 6 are, Chris. Thanks, Tom. So on my number 10 is the dark and brooding dramatic epic, An Elephant Sitting Still, which is just bristling in existentialism uh, created by Hu Bu, which uh, unfortunately will never be able to create another film again because he committed suicide just as the film was finished, even before it was released and became quite an international success, which is an absolute tragedy. Um, my, on, on a more positive note, though, still a little bit of a gloomy film is my number ninth, a, a Portuguese woman by Rita Acevedo Gomes, which is just stunningly beautiful. And it essentially feels like large portraits coming to life. It, the way it stages scenes uh, and dialogue with detail is it, just absolutely fantastic. My number eight is uh, David Lowery's uh, The Old Man and the gun, which is uh, Robert Redford's uh, final starring role and serves as just a wonderful way to not just commemorating his past career, but also bring back the kind of fun 60s, 70s crime adventure film in an atmosphere that's kind of updated for today. My seventh is Cold War by Pavel Pavlikovsky, which is just shot in stunning black and white cinematography and highlighting a tragic romance in Cold War Czechoslovakia. And finally, uh, my sixth place is the visually arresting Long Day's Journey Into Night, which truly lives up to its name, with the last half being a genuine dreamlike odyssey. I think Gambi is undoubtedly one of the best directors working right now, and the only reason that this did not shoot into my top five is because of the slightly more contrived plotting in his first half. So I would say Gumby, fantastic at creating immersive visual experience. He still needs a little bit of work on his storytelling. Uh, so with my sixth place all out of the way, and thank you so much, everyone, for not just diving into and dissecting each other's 10 to 6 choices. We managed to get through this in just about 10 minutes and we're ready to actually dive in a lot deeper into our number five, number four, number three, number two, and finally our first choice. So let's just get started with you, Mathieu. What is your number five film of 2018? Well, this will be quick because my number five is higher on someone else's list and that is Spike Lee's Black Landsman. Surprisingly fun film about the KKK. That's all I'll say for now. We'll get back to it later. <laughs> all right, then, Saul, what is your number five? My number five of 2018 is a film whose title I'm probably going to butcher because I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it. I think it's called Anhadan. It's an Indian film. It's in the IMDb Top 250, and it sort of bucks the trend as being maybe the one Indian film that does actually belong in the IMDb Top 250. So in a nutshell, it's about a blind pianist who 
learns about a crime but is unable to report it. And I don't really want to say too much because there's lots of twists and turns along the way. But the film uh, really made me think a lot about human decency. It weaves a tapestry of morally conflicted characters and some who act less honourably than others. There are several suspenseful moments throughout, especially as his life comes into danger and as things further and further spiral out of control. I mean, some of it is a little bit goofy, but in general, I thought it was a great film. I thought it was really in the mould of a Hitchcockian thriller, and I found it absolutely riveting from start to finish, and I just would have never expected that of an Indian film on the IMDb Top 250. So not all Indian films are like Three Idiots, and this is one of those films that proves it. Yeah, And Hadun is um, really a crazy film. You, you bring up Hitchcock, I see what you mean there with some scenes, but what came to my mind was more the Coen Brothers. And it, it kind of has that kind of um, nonsensical energy of something like Burn After Reading, where the characters are doing wild things, with also the very dark dark view of humanity. And it's all, all put together in this Bollywood package where you have a bunch of different genres and different tones being mixed. I don't think the way the characters behave really holds up. It, it seems that that they mostly behave in the way that will advance the plots in the most kind of crazy or fun way. But I do think it's a very fun time. I think the director really manages to keep an energy throughout the film that, that kind of works for this, this story. I agree with Matthew. It's got a very Cohen S. Brothers feel to it. It's quite a far-fetched film, and there's a mix of genres, as has been mentioned. But it is engaging throughout... Even the handful of uh, Bollywood-style songs that are in there, they're fun. It's a very twisty and unpredictable plotline which keeps you engaged. Um, So I I did enjoy this one, although I felt it would have potentially been better if it was played completely straight as a pitch-black comedy. But for what it was, it's still a a fun time. Yeah, I can pretty much agree agree with what you guys are saying and I can understand the uh, viewpoint. The Coen Brothers reference is interesting because uh, Adam from New York is not with us this week. He actually also watched the film, my recommendation. He said it had a very Coen Brothers film and apparently the filmmakers wanted to do something that was modelled after Fargo, the original 1996 film, not the TV series. And, um, yeah, look, I, I think a lot about um, Anne Haddon, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, a lot of it was just the way it totally took me by surprise. We had an Indian subcontinent challenge on the ICM forum, and it was just a film that was available uh, to watch. And I thought, look, I'll watch it. It's on the IMDb Top 250. I had no expectations. And I think just entry with no expectations, it just blew me away. I have no idea if the impact would be same, the same the second time around. And I think if I did watch the second time, I probably would pick up a little bit more at a few of the weaknesses that sort of, you know, maybe went under the radar for me because I was just amazed about how good a quality of film it was. So my number five is another film that channels the energy of the Coen Brothers. It's a black comedy from Australia, Brothers Nest, but it is ranked higher up in Souls list, so we'll talk more about that later. 
And I suppose that brings us to uh, my number five, which is uh, Christian Petzl's Transit, the final part of his uh, thematic uh, oppressive systems trilogy. Uh, and essentially, uh, Transit is a philosophical thought experiment in a way. It, it takes you to a never world, which is just by taking a book placed in occupied France in the 1940s and adopting it for today with re no real alterations except clothes, weapons, and making it look like contemporary France. We are essentially facing something we have not quite seen, uh, an echo from the past. And, and this film really feels like an existential echo throughout. I mean, it has the classic obfuscation and minimalism Petzold is known for, brutal in simplicity and uh, ways of finding suspense. Uh, plot and details are largely vague and unknown. I, I would go as far as to call it beautifully vague. It, it can even feel like a tragic dream where we see characters simply trying to escape, get transit to another country and another life. And because there is this echo, because it is close to our world yet so far away, uh, the experience almost becomes surreal and hellish. I mean, I think it's an absolutely wonderful film and I'm really happy that uh, Petzold managed to find uh, this type of material, because even though it's so good at setting up suspense uh, in his film and setting up the atmosphere in his film, I think he often struggles with finding material that cuts a little bit deeper. So I think this really is a film that allows him to show off exactly what he can do. I was a bit on the fence with Transit. I was hooked throughout and I was curious to see what was going to happen. Though I felt that the decision to film it kind of in in the modern day where it's based on a, a story set uh, during the war was a bit jarring and unusual it was certainly interesting though i don't think it was wholly successful i feel that um, the director missed out on the opportunity to focus on a mysterious gloomy story set at a, a port in in france Something like Port of Shadows, for instance, which is one of my favourite films. Instead of the, you know, the gloomy, shady port, you've got the industrialised port. And it, I don't know, I feel like it would have been a stronger film if they'd have kept to the uh, original setting rather than placing it in contemporary times. But it's certainly an interesting watch. So I was glad that Chris uh, recommended this one. I really dislike Transit, and I hate to say that because I know it's one of Chris's top five films, and I did watch it specifically for the podcast. For the most part, during Transit, I was like, oh, you know, this is okay. The part that Tom found jarring about the modern day and the older France put together was actually probably my favourite part of the film. I like the fact that it was sort of like a modern day setting, but they had like a lot of old school technology, like the old transistor radio. I found that really interesting, but I agree with what Tom said about there not being that much doom and gloom. I guess I also just felt there wasn't really that much tension there. There wasn't that much suspense. There's a great part early on where one of the soldiers asks to see the main guy's papers. He doesn't have any. So he runs away and he gets chased. I'm like, oh, it's going to be a really good paranoia thriller. But it never really amounted to anything. It became a bit of a surrogate father-son story. It became a little bit of a love subplot with a refugee woman. 
Uh, none of that was ever as interesting to me as the whole paranoia of the times, which is what I was expecting. There's some stuff with bureaucratic red tape and he goes and sees some officials. But again, that's a very small part of it. So I guess for the most part, I just thought, you know, this is just such a missed opportunity, especially with really interesting things going on with having the modern and the old mixed together. And I was pretty much going, yeah, this isn't really too great. But then the end credits song came on and I'm like, no, this film's a disc like. I mean, the end credits song is kind of like funnily a bit ironic. I don't think it's going to be a spoiler to say what the song is. Uh, the song is Road to Nowhere by Talking Heads. And when I heard it, I'm like, yeah, this sums up the film so well. It just, just goes nowhere. So, yeah, sorry. It was a dislike for me. Very <laughs> sorry. So I will, I will defend the, that last little drop. Um, it's the Talking Heads song. And I think it's actually very appropriate for the film. I, I do agree that it's a little jarring because the film ends on a bit of a melancholy note and it's a more, it's a talking head song, so it's more happy. Uh, but the message of the song is really appropriate for the film, right? It's, it's, I mean, the film is titled Transit because it's kind of, these people are in transit and in the way we are all <laughs> in transit. I mean, that sounds a little silly to say, but I think that's really kind of the point of the film. It's a film I, I enjoyed. I think it's gorgeously shot in particular. Uh, I would say Marseille is a very, a very cinema friendly city, but one that doesn't get used that much uh, for a bunch of reasons. And so it was really nice to see it uh, shot this way. And it, it also helps when you have Paula Bear in your film in terms of beauty. That's, that, that's a plus. Um, but I think I had a little trouble with the device, right? The conceits of this being seemingly in modern day France. I think that that's a very interesting idea, but I don't feel that the film does much with it. Maybe, I, I don't know, I, I thought at first there was a political point being made, but it, it, it just kind of goes away. I don't know, it, it feels artificial, and to me it ends up distracting from what the film is really interested in, which is this idea of displaced people and how they live, which is very Casablanca. Uh, that, that's the film that came to mind most for me. Uh, especially with some of the later plot developments regarding who gets on a vehicle, <laughs> not a plane in this case, but uh, still kind of the same idea, and the romance aspects also. So I, I like the film, but in the end, I thought that what the pitch of it, the, what should be the most interesting part of it, ended up being kind of a bit of a distraction for me. Yeah, that's fair enough. I, mean, I, I do think that the vagueness of uh, key strength, because it makes it, feel uh, so much more uh, dreamlike essentially and it, uh, it I think I think the fact that it is so vague leaves your mind open to uh, wonder about these things far more as well but uh, moving on to our number four choices because that's right we already finished our fifth choices what's your number four favorite film of uh, 2018 Mathieu? Um, so my number four is actually the year's Pandora winner, Shoplifters by Hirokazu Koreeda. It's hard to describe what makes Koreeda's films in general work so well for me. He's a pretty sentimental director, which is generally not what I prefer, but he really earns that sentimentality through writing characters that feel real. And by filming their environments, especially interiors, in ways that make them feel lived in, and that's really the case here with the this house that this makeshift family is staying in. 
And maybe it'd be, it'd be more appropriate to say that he's an incredibly empathetic director rather than sentimental, maybe. And that is exactly what you need for this story of this family that, when looking at the facts in a cold, detached way, may appear to be despicable. But when that framing comes into play late in the film, it's almost like ice cracking under your feet because of how empathetic, again, Correda's filmmaking is and how good the performances are, especially uh, by Sakura Ando as the mother. Most filmmakers, and for some reason Ken Loach comes to mind, must have made this uh, tragic cautionary tale about how poorly people are treated in modern society, but Correa makes it into something more humanistic. He lets the social context of the film be informed by the characters rather than the other way around, which to me makes it uh, all the more powerful. So I did really like Shoplifters. I thought it was a great film and a great look at how strong the family ties are in a family that's sort of in the marginalised part of society. I thought it actually had a bit in common with Parasite in a way and, of course, their fellow Palm d'Or winners at the Arcane Film Festival. Sutter wasn't quite as strong for me in Shoplifters, but I just thought the connection between the characters were great. Uh, I don't know about sem- sentimental, but yes, I think I agree, empathetic. It's a very empathetic film. And I really like the um, the actress who played the young girl. I thought she was excellent, as well as the one who plays her adopted brother, who begins to question his thieving. If I add one criticism of the film, though, it's probably that for a film called Shoplifters, there's not a whole lot of shoplifting in there. And I would have loved <laughs> to see more of that. No, it sounds funny. I would have loved to have seen more of the clever, brazing, shoplifting attempts. I mean, there's an amazing one, and it's in the trailer, so it's probably no spoilers, where they sort of, like, unplug the um, the part that sort of, like, beeps when somebody walks through so they could uh, take and shoplift something out without the, shop, without the shopkeeper knowing. And just those sort of schemes, just so really cool, so clever. I would have loved to have seen more of that in a film called Shoplifters. But I do agree that it's a great film and it's easily in my top half of the films that I've seen in 2018. So I've seen a number of films by Corita and I've got to say that I have enjoyed them all, though I don't find any of them particularly remarkable. He's got this brand of contemplative human drama that he seems to present and he creates these fascinating uh, brooding storylines but they never seem to really grab me or engage me the way that a a favourite film would. So I enjoy Shoplifters. It's a good watch, but I found it nothing particularly special. I just want to say that Saul's comparison to Parasite is really spot on. I hadn't thought about it before, but it's kind of the uh, dysfunctional way just playing around with the family elements in in the early part of the film. I, I think that Shoplifters is a good film, not necessarily a great film, but it's really well acted, it's really immersive, um, and I completely agree uh, as well with what uh, you said, Matthew, in that when it shifts gear from being this more uh, unnerving film, where you're suspicious uh, about the family relations, and then you suddenly uh, become more empathetic, I think that, uh, that switch completely worked. It, it's surprising that it worked, but it really did. And I also think that the performances are spot on and that, yes, uh, w- that house truly feels lived in. It's such a great setting for a story as well. So I think that it 
really nailed uh, the atmosphere and uh, the kind of world it was establishing. Though I will also completely agree with Saul, uh, for a film about shoplift uh, shoplifters, there should have been more shoplifting. And those scenes were uh, some of the best ones in the film. Yeah, I mean, that's unfair. I mean, it, it's it's a pretty memorable scene when, when they do that. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't feel that they're forced to do to spend 40 minutes on shoplifting just because it's the title. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the comparison with Parasite was definitely one that, that came to my mind when Parasite, when I saw Parasite, I was like, oh, they basically gave it to the same film twice in a row. <laughs> I mean, two different takes on the same, on a similar story. Uh, so, Saul, what's your uh, fourth favorite film of 2018? So the film that I've selected for my fourth favourite is an Australian film, which is quite unusual for me because despite living here, I'm not really a big fan of Australian cinema in general. But this is a really good one. It's from the uh, team behind Kenny, which I don't know if many of our listeners would have seen. It was very popular down here. A sort of jovial comedy about this um, guy and with toilets and whatever he works with toilets for a living but it's a much darker comedy than that and it involves two brothers who arrive at an isolated cottage early one morning to plan a crime now as the film progresses along we learn more and more about their crime the intended victim and the motives and they're not all that it seems to be at first the first act of the film is absolutely terrific. There's great comic banter between the brothers as they meticulously map their actions. Uh, some really clever parts in how they're going to be sending their phones over to another um, city and then back. So it's sort of got tracking on the phones that they haven't been at uh, the place where they're going to commit the crime. The second act of the film gets more interesting as the plot becomes more twisted. And the third act, well, it's not quite as good as the first two, but, you know, I still thoroughly enjoyed the film. It has a very Carter-Burlesque music score, if I can coin a term there. It's very much like the music of Carter Burwell. And with that in mind, I really felt I was watching a bit of a Coen Brothers film with uh, the whole experience and just the way things played out and just all the dark comic vibes that come out with this crime story. I'm so pleased that I'm not alone in loving Brother's Nest because it is a brilliant black comedy. I mean, for the first half of the film, the brothers are the only characters on screen and the morbid humour of their interactions builds and builds until events take a turn for worse and the situation begins to spiral out of control. And the director bridges this change in mood with ease. The, the slow burn of the initial setup enables the audience to connect with these two brothers, Terry and Jeff, leaving us fully invested in their plight. And the crescendo of violence makes you question how far the siblings will go. And as the tense situation escalates, there are graphic scenes which verge dangerously close to horror territory. And I feel that it's refreshing to see such an original take on the downfall of a dysfunctional family, especially as it seamlessly blends elements of, of black humour with a, a playful streak of brutal violence. And it still manages to have a, a profound emotional effect on the viewer. So I think that Brother's Nest is a, a destined future court classic and one that those with a taste for the darker side of cinema would do well to seek out immediately. Uh, yeah, I quite enjoyed uh, Brothers Nest. I think it's funny that uh, we have all of these Korean Brothers connection again. I guess they should really have made a film in 2018. They would be an artist. Um, <laughs> but, uh, 
but but yeah, I, I agree with Tom with the escalation. I, I find that quite quite entertaining. And one thing I will one connection I will add is it made me think a little bit of Breaking Bad in the sense that it is very process focused, especially at the start. And even the the setting, it's Australian, of course, but it's you know small town, rural, and especially if you're familiar with the first few episodes of Breaking Bad, the fact that they're kind of in this house and have to deal with a, a difficult situation. It, it, there are connections there and positive ones. I, I quite like the the acting and the humor. I think it's yeah, it's a good film. Maybe I don't like it quite as much as you guys, but definitely something I would recommend. Brothers Nest definitely uh, won me over. It's a great dark comedy. It's beautifully suspenseful. And it's one of those films that just really enjoys being dark, which is something my number four does as well. But uh, I really felt that, you know, with all of this dialogue and mannerisms, just poking fun at the concepts and this kind of very morbid way, it's almost like a bit of a modern day rope, tying it in a little bit to Hitchcock as well, not just the Coen brothers. It's uh, thoroughly uh, just has fun with this dark concept. I think that there's only two issues I have with it uh, personally. The first one is that a lot of the dialogue feels a lot like exposition and the second one is that like Saul said the the third act is uh, the weakest and it it feels a little bit like it suddenly wants to try to be extra cool Uh, but as as a film that's set in one single location at uh, you know this uh, family farm and uh, just almost entirely done through uh, dialogue with such a small cast I think it's just very well done and I definitely agree with Tom that this could easily become uh, a cult uh, favorite. It's interesting that uh, Matthew does mention this is the second um, Coen Brothers type film that's popped up in my list because The Battle of Buster Scruggs which is their uh, 2018 film almost made my list of honorable mentions. Uh, It's got an amazing first part in there but the other stories aren't quite as great as the first part but it's still a really cool film and I guess I do like the Coen Brothers a lot, so I guess Coen Brothers influence films do tend to impress me. Uh, the rope connection is interesting, Chris. I hadn't actually thought about that before. I get what you're saying with the singular location, but I suppose with rope, I guess I've always seen it as a bit more of a gimmick film than anything else, whereas Brothers Nest is a film that I think really does something really interesting with the story beyond having a gimmick of, oh, let's try and make it look like one continuous take. Oh, that's just me. Well, that, that's uh, perfectly fair, Saul. I think Brothers uh, Nest definitely doesn't have anything close to that type of gimmick. Oh, I might just mention with the uh, third act, the, yeah, look, I did find the third act disappointing. I don't know if it's trying to be too cool, but I think it was just the way it sort of like ends on a joke. I mean, there's one light at the end and it sort of made me giggle and I'm sort of like, <laughs> I don't know if I should be you know, laughing at this point. So, yeah, I don't know. That's <laughs> true. No, it went a bit all out comedy there as well with uh, a lot of puns and dialogue. That was it, it, it was both cool and trying to be cool at the same time. So I think it, it, it's still, it is still successful. I quite liked the ending. I, I felt that it was it was fitting, and it, it makes sense for the the development of the the character arcs. And I've just got to say that Matthew's reference of Breaking Bad is a great great thing to point out. I think if you enjoy Breaking Bad, you definitely enjoy this. Um, from early on, the two brothers are dressed in these suits, almost like hazmat suits, and I can see why that immediately recalls memories of Breaking Bad. So yeah, if you like Breaking Bad, check out Brothers Nest. 
I'll admit I completely forgot about Ballad of Ghost of Scruggs, a film I like actually, but yeah, not 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 maybe not the best uh, film from the Coen Brothers, but yeah, I thought I thought they hadn't made made a film. <laughs> Incredible to just erase it, but uh, to get back on the topic and uh, continuing uh, with our number four films, what's your fourth favorite film of 2018, Tom? So sometimes we need to switch off with some undemanding escapist entertainment. And my number four fits the bill for me perfectly. It's uh, Ready Player One by Steven Spielberg. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with the storyline, Ready Player One is set in the near future. I think it's 2045, something like that. And it follows an orphan teenager on a quest to discover a fortune that has been hidden in a virtual world by its creator. Now, Spielberg's playful adaptation of the classic sci-fi novel is so much fun. It's full of nostalgia for classic video games and homages to some of my favourite films that made it impossible for me to resist its charm. The huge explosive action sequences transport you into a futuristic vision of multiplayer gaming that is absolutely mesmerising and will undoubtedly strike a chord with anyone who spent far too much time playing video games from when they were younger. But I think it will also appeal to a, a new younger crowd who are not necessarily familiar with all the video games it references, but can just go along with a ride and, and enjoy this entertaining slice of fun from Spielberg. So I, I was really not a fan of Ready Player One at all. I, I won't dwell into it too much, but it felt a bit to me like um, an old guy trying to play with tools that he kind of didn't have much love for. Uh, it feels, it doesn't feel to me like much of a celebration of video games at all. Not that I need that it to be that, but it felt a little moralistic in ways that I didn't quite like, and I, I didn't find the characters very, very well written. One thing I will say though is that I think some of the action sequences work well. Uh, I think the, the whole homage to The Shining is quite, uh, quite fun. Definitely. And seeing Ready Player One soon after, I don't remember what Marvel film it was, but I thought, well, yeah, you can see that there's a real director in terms of action. I mean, I like Marvel, but Spielberg definitely does much better with it. But yeah, I'm not not a fan overall. I, I think uh, Ready Player One was quite uh, enjoyable. I, I was really unsure about. Uh, heading in because like the real world seemed almost as digital as uh, uh, the world of the game and uh, as you get this kind of uh, narration it was like uh, essentially like seeing Wreck-It Ralph narrated by the kid from the Goldberg but uh, I think it grew on me as it went along and I did really enjoy uh, the shining part where they literally go into the uh, Overlook uh, Hotel and it, it, it does have a lot of fun in it, it, it plays around a I think I completely agree with Mathieu that it's really well choreographed. The action scenes are quite, quite good. Uh, but uh, I will also agree that it didn't feel as much as a love letter to these games and films, but maybe except The Shining and a few others, but more like just an endless degree of just quick homages and shout-outs, often with characters just literally shouting out the type of character model, etc. that was coming in. So it just, <laughs> it, uh, it didn't really work that, that well for me, but it, it was uh, perfectly enjoyable. I thought that Ready Player One was okay. I didn't think it was a great film. I didn't hate it. I know there were some haters out there. I know people like Matthew disliked it. So I didn't hate 
Ready Player One, I didn't dislike it. I thought it was okay, but then again, I'm a bit of a Spielberg apologist, I guess. I really like Spielberg films in general. <laughs> and, well, no, I actually think he's, a, he's a quite a skilled filmmaker, and I guess coming with that background, I was expecting something, I guess, a bit more entertaining, I guess maybe like a Jurassic Park type of, you know, or War of the Worlds with a little bit of depth in there as well as being a bit of a blockbuster. And yeah, I don't think the depth there was really anything too great. I mean, there's a tiresome, you know, spend more time in the real world message in there. The Shining, like my co-hosts, I agree that the recreation of The Shining is the absolute high point of the film. Although rather than it being something where I was unable to resist the charms, like Tom said, because of the whole Shining recreation, it actually made me wish I was watching The Shining instead. And, <laughs> and since Ready Player One, we've actually had Dr. Sleep that's sort of done the same thing and try to go back in the Overlook Hotel. I think that sort of did it um, in a bit more of an interesting manner. But look, um, there's some good things about Ready Player One. The visual effects are excellent. I thought Mike Rylance was uh, great in it as the creator of the game. I thought it was a really interesting performance, really interesting character, even though he's not in it for a lot of it. The rest of the cast, though, I thought on, and maybe may be acceptable at best. I thought, I, I thought Ty Sheridan was very uncharismatic as the lead character. And, yeah. I guess I just didn't find it uh, too interesting or really too original, I guess, other than the Shining recreation part. So enough interesting elements in there that I wasn't bored and I didn't hate it. But I guess coming as somebody who does generally like Spielberg films, it was a bit of a disappointment. I think there's one more critique and really sorry about uh, this time. But uh, I think one issue I have with it was that it didn't really feel like a satire or parody of like 80s conventions but it just had all of these 80s conventions just mimicking things that would be fun in an 80s film and just bringing it all back but without really adding anything extra to it so it, it is didn't really work the way it otherwise could have it it just felt a little bit false especially when you have people you know in the 2040s and you have these teenagers who are all obsessed with 80s pop culture which just also seemed a little bit uh, bizarre though i will say marco islands despite in, in some of the scenes looking a lot like he was cosplaying a character from the big bang theory was great i think marco islands always is great so it was uh, nice seeing him in the movie he definitely elevated it I think you raise a good point about the nostalgia for the 80s. Then for me, it added, you know, it heightened the sense of fun and the magical feeling because the nostalgia was relevant to, to me because um, I grew up playing these games and the references to the Easter eggs and the secret levels and things like that. And they helped me to overlook things like the not particularly great acting from the lead and the other flaws that, that you pick out because I was having such a fun time with this and I think that anyone who you know was obsessed with video games as I was when growing up will love this and you know that's why it hits such a, a sweet spot for me. Yeah, very good that's definitely a great defense 
And moving on to my number four, which is the favorite by Yorgos Lantimos. And honestly, I mean, for all the extravaganza and the naked, wicked up Tory politicians in the 1600s, uh, this is uh, probably his uh, most conventional film to date, certainly since his early films. But but all the same, it, it has the absurdity of excess and decadence. I mean, which, which essentially just turns into a grotesque fantasy in the proportions befitting a Peter Greenaway film. It's... what is so striking is just how much this film just seems to love existing. It loves the games and the brutality, uh, the dark cruelty and whale threats. It's colorful, teasing, and uh, you know it, it, it's like oh my, how much like uh, it's just uh, how much it just loves the clothes, wigs, mannerisms, and, and the manners. Not not to mention breaking them. I mean, this is the kind of film that just has so much fun at winking at you as the traps are set and the hands uh, and, and the value of uh, the cars and people's hands change. And then you have the camera work, uh, often at extreme perspectives and, and just loving uh, the fisheye lens. I mean, giving just this sweeping perspective. We may uh, be close to the floor, otherwise just feel at the edge. And it really puts us into the unstable uh, mind of Queen Anne and just the volatility of the game that's being played here uh, as well. And Let's just uh, put it like this. Olivia Colman is simply incredible as Queen Anne. And as someone with, at least at this point in time, limited health and seemingly even limited mental uh, abilities, almost with the mind of a child, the way she acts. And, and then we you know, explore how she's essentially pushed and manipulated by both uh, Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone, uh, while she is the one with the ultimate power. It makes it all the more intriguing and just, above all, darkly comedic, uh, unnerving, and just it really delivers this uh, tour de force of playful emotions. And while not you know, the usual cold and bleak world where souls go to die, which we've come to expect from Lantimus. I mean, this is pretty damn dark all the same. Yeah, I love The Favourite. As I mentioned, it was pretty close to making my top five. And I generally have a soft spot for historical films that don't feel grandiose or don't try to feel self-important, right? That, that kind of deflates the weight of history. And I think The Favourite is a great example of that. The performances, I agree, uh, Olivia Colman is great and she won the Oscar, good for her, but for me, the standout was actually Emma Stone. She, I would say she's the lead of the film and she really anchors it. Uh, she really gives you someone kind of to root for. I mean, everyone is kind of horrible in this film. I mean, it is, it is a Yorgos Lentibos film. It, it doesn't have that... Uh, yeah, dead eyes thing and super monotone acting of, of his previous films, but you still have that kind of lack of faith in humanity, but it's extremely fun. Uh, I, yeah, I really enjoyed the favorites. I also really liked the favorite. It's such a fun, quirky vision of uh, British history that perhaps you could only get from a Greek director tackling the subject. And I think one thing that that helps the unique vision is, as Chris mentioned, the brilliant camera work, the unusual angles and the fisheye lens that really give the film a distinct style all of its own, even though it is clearly influenced by Greenway's work in the, in the draftsman's contract. 
Now, there are a lot of great performances in this film. I like how we're all picking out uh, different actors. But for me, I really enjoyed Nicholas Holt's performance. He's um, striking out to make a very interesting career. He started out in About a Boy and then Skins, and then he's moved on to things like Mad Max Fury Road and The Favourite, and he's, he's taken on some diverse roles. And I thought it really showed a, a maturity uh, that he's come a long way from his, his origin. And honestly, I really enjoyed The Favourite. It was quite close to cracking my top 10. Maybe on a rewatch, it would be pushed up a bit more because talking about it now has certainly got me excited about the prospect of giving it another go. So I'm going to carry on the trend with The Favourite and single out another favourite actor. I thought that Rachel Weisz was by far and away the best performer in The Favourite. I mean, I enjoyed all the performances, especially from Olivia Coleman and Emma Stone, but just what Rachel Weisz managed to do, I just thought she came across as a bit more sympathetic maybe than Emma Stone, despite being equally as cunning and manipulative. I don't think I've seen the film recently enough to be able to come up with key examples of it, but I really felt we were rooting a bit more for her throughout, even though we could see that she was being just as cunning and just as manipulative. Uh, the whole film is just incredibly well acted, and it's just a great look at the shifting power dynamics between these three women who have all this power in a male-dominated world. I mean, you've got all these men around, but the men don't really do anything. They can't really do much, and everything is being controlled by these three women. So it's yeah, a really great um, sort of historical, maybe even revision of the uh, dance moves and some of the dialogue definitely doesn't seem like 18th century England, so it's a bit of an unusual take on things. But, yeah, I just um, love just the uh, shifting power dynamics. I thought there was so much going on there. And the camera work, yeah, just incredible. All the fisheye lensing uh, just makes everything seem very voyeuristic, which I thought was absolutely perfect because we're looking at what may or may not have transpired uh, behind closed doors way back then. So, yeah, absolutely love the favourite. Very close to putting in my top five, but I had to give that shout-out to that Indian film in the IMDb Top 250. <laughs> absolutely acceptable, so. I just completely agree. All of these performances are spectacular. And, you know, the Nicholas Holt, I, I, I completely agree. Like, he's such a, what can you even use to describe him in this film? He, he's at the same time childish and unnerving and uh, this this uh, almost horrifying uh, scheming plotter. And I, I also see exactly what you're talking about. So in terms of uh, Vice ending up being more sympathetic, because I do think that as the film starts, you know, obviously we, do have Emma Stone as this underdog but as the film progresses you can see just how far she's willing to go and we got quite close to see the, like, this kind of sociopathic willingness to play act and uh, be deceptive there so it's uh, I can definitely see that even with all of the things she does Weiss ended up, ends up being the most sympathetic of the three and with uh, the favorites summed up. We're actually on to our top threes. So, uh, Mathieu, what's uh, your third favorite film of 2018? Um, my number three is Nuri Bilge Ceylan's Alat Agassi, or The White Pear Tree. Sorry to potential Turkish listeners if I butchered that. I was familiar with Ceylan through his two previous films, which both used the desolate landscape of Anatolia. 
But this mostly takes place on the Mediterranean coast, which means it feels quite different visually, literally much warmer in every sense of the word than something like winter sleep, for example. This is mostly focused on a young aspiring writer and his relationship with his father, who's played by Murat Chemshir in a very charismatic performance that's really key to the whole film. This is a long film that goes on a lot of tangents at times, but the father's presence is felt throughout in how it influences every decision the main character makes, and the complexity and depth of emotion of that relationship is what holds it all together and culminates in a pretty powerful and thoughtful ending. Ceylan is an extremely talented writer, and it shows here with the dry humor that's presents throughout, but what makes this film special for me is the way he uses editing, especially in a scene featuring two imams discussing um, ethical issues. And, you know, the discussion is interesting enough as it is, but Ceylan enhances it in the way he frames them in the environment, and especially in his use of almost non-continuous editing. You know, Saidan often references Chekhov as a model in terms of writing, and you see that here with the way he, ki- he kind of incorporates short stories into the main narrative, and he manages to make all of those different threads of this young man's life add up to something that feels coherent and even revelatory. It's essentially about nothing less than a man trying to learn how to live, and that sounds like a very lofty goal, but Saidan's writing really is up to the task for me. And I should mention that it's also a gorgeous-looking film, as with all of his films, really. Again, the, that Mediterranean setting is used so well, kind of like Transit, which we mentioned earlier. And the main character, though he is at times not very likable, you really feel for him because, again, the writing is just, just so good. Yeah, really, uh, really enjoyed The Wild Pear Tree. I think it's a great film and possibly even Ceylon's uh, best film. I, I think it's, it's such an interesting contrast to uh, the film immediately preceding it too. We just had this kind of stripped back minimalistic noir, essentially. Uh, and then you get this, which is just almost all carried out through dialogue. And I think the dialogue was what really impressed and immersed me here. You have this uh, struggling writer filled with all of these self-pretensions, essentially. Uh, And you kind of get both a look at where he will go with his life, uh, but then also just the society around him and the world he kind of wants to leave behind. And I just loved how natural it all feels. Like you mentioned the, that scene with the imams, which is probably my standout scene as well. I think it goes on for about half an hour. It's really just them meeting on the road and then just walking through the landscapes, talking, both arguing, having fun, having more general conversations, just sitting down for a coffee. And, and just the way that conversation evolves, it, it's really immersive. You really feel brought in. It's like you're walking along with these friends almost, and you have these discussions. It just feels so familiar. And I really think that uh, Salon managed to do something really special. And yes, I completely agree. The actor who plays the father does a phenomenal job, and he really anchors the film as well. So I, I just think it's, it's a wonderful film. It's almost made my top 10. So I'm really glad you included it uh, here so we could talk about it. I'm happy to see that you also mentioned this scene with the imams because I haven't rewatched The, the Wild Poetry. I, I probably should have because I don't know what it is about that scene. I think it's maybe just what they're talking about. But yeah, I don't know what why it is so special. <laughs> and I should rewatch it to try and figure it out. 
The Wild Pear Tree is the only film in everyone's top list that I haven't seen, unfortunately. I've not been particularly impressed with Salem's films up till now, but I am intrigued by your uh, glowing recommendations for it, so maybe I'll get around to giving it a chance one day soon. I mean, not watching three hours films by filmmakers you don't like is really kind of bad. I mean, Tom, I don't know if, what, what, you're, what you're doing in this podcast, really. <laughs> <laughs> You've hit the nail on the head there. The, uh, the runtime was quite intimidating for film. I wasn't sure if I was going to enjoy or not, but who knows? <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. I mean, uh, it, it does, just to it a little bit, it does feel a little bit different in that uh, dialogue. It, it's so heavy here. I mean, I don't think it's fair to, for instance, compare it to uh, Romer, but uh, I, I, I did think a little bit about the three, the mayor and the discotheque in this, where you kind of have a similar kind of just long sets of uh, dialogue that becomes immersive. And I do think that uh, just the way he uses this semi-dislikable lead. I mean, he's very flawed. He's, he's filled with these pretensions and he just meets these people. And some of his interactions, uh, like especially one, another one that stood out for me was the one where he meets a popular author and he just sits down and forces himself essentially into his life a little bit, uh, all while critiquing him and kind of doing this mini digs at his writing style because he's uh, successful and he thinks he has something special, but he hasn't even uh, you know, properly pu published a single book yet. Uh, and uh, again, just really love all of these little set pieces. They feel like they work incredibly well as a story on their own. Uh, but at the same time, they really fit into this greater whole of this just really wavered, uh, semi-tragic character and his growth. So, moving on. Saul, so, what's uh, your third favorite film? Well, this is quite interesting because only a few minutes ago I was saying that I don't usually have Australian films at the top part of my list. <laughs> and I've already gone through Brother's Nest. I'm now going to mention another Australian film. So for third place uh, is a film called Upgrade. It's by Lee Wanell, who recently did the remake of The Invisible Man. So came out a couple of years before that. And... It's a film that I really liked the first time around, but I found even more interesting at re-watching it because it actually plays out in a very tragic sort of way, which you don't quite pick up the first time and you don't know where it's going to go. Uh, look, my basic one-line description for it would be it's like Frank Henlotter's brain damage crossed with a David Cronenberg body horror film. And I mean that in the best possible way. It involves a quadriplegic who gets an experimental chip installed in his neck, which allows him to move his limbs. And there's a symbiotic relationship that he develops with the uh, chip because the chip starts talking to him and that relationship soon goes awry. And I just found it a really enticing film without spoiling it too much from start to finish because it goes in a lot of interesting directions in terms of artificial intelligence. But there's also a lot of genre jumping in there. So there's some laugh out loud, funny parts in there with some of the things that STEM, which is the name of the chip, is able to do inside the host's body. And uh, the film just looks absolutely amazing also. So it's set in the future, but it's not like the far off future. And it's just got all these amazing saturated colors, neon lighting, all these newfangled sets. The lab where he gets the chip installed is sort of like this underground cave. So it's this doctor who lives underground and everything's underground. It's got this amazing sort of lab where it has 
these x-ray parts where if you go through one part's x-ray go through another part it's normal see-through so just lots of really interesting art setting things going on there great art direction really great unusual music score and just such a haunting ending when you finally work out what's been going along the whole way and it's just absolutely so tragic and so heartbreaking watching it a second time knowing everything to come but i guess it just makes it even more of a richer experience knowing everything and diving into it a second time yeah i really enjoyed upgrade as well it actually has clayton jacobson who plays the uh, older brother in the brother's nest uh, in a smaller role there i thought it was really fun to see but no i completely agree with uh, the world here the world building is great and it looks great and uh, one thing you didn't mention which i really enjoyed is just how robotic almost it makes our lead appear to be especially the way it moves around and fights uh, and it, it's kind of centered on his back. It's just this very jarring effect, using jarring in a positive way, and it really works. I think my only um, negatives for this film would be that the plot really feels a bit assembled from uh, 80s and 90s uh, tropes and trends. And it, it, does like, it does feel like a film that would have been a very fitting for the early 2000s or, or, or even uh, uh, late 90s in just the way it uh, looks at the future, the way it's plotted, the type of uh, plot tools it, it uses. And, and I do think that there's... Uh, elements in just how the plot is set up that didn't quite work that well for me but it's a very enjoyable film it has a lot of action it's it's a lot of uh, fun and uh, yeah i really enjoy how this film was made yeah i thought a grade was um a good time a fun pulpy um, almost exploitation film but I wish it had maybe more leaned into that. And as Chris said, I think the story tries to kind of have this twisty story, which is pretty predictable. And it, that's not the most effective part of the film. What's really effective is all of the, the action scenes are great. The way Wanel uses a tilting of the screen to kind of sell this very robotic move, the, the unnatural way his body moves. I think that's great. And yeah, again, Surely as a pulp story uh, of revenge, really, I think it works quite well and it's very dynamic. I just think the, the writing is perhaps not quite there and so maybe less focus on the characters would have actually been better in this case. Especially with the kind of comic book style of bad guys who's so a little bit over the top, leaning into that a bit more could have made the film better, but it would also have been a bit of a different film because I really liked how grounded the film was in the early film. Uh, you didn't necessarily know exactly where it would go either. So I, I do think it, uh, it still works quite well. It's a slick and stylish thriller, though I, I struggled to relate to the main character. I couldn't empathise with the protagonist. And while it's certainly inventive, it borrows a lot from uh, 80s films like Chris said, it doesn't seem to break any new ground. And the standout scene for me is probably the moment in the bar, but I find the rest of it quite forgettable. I'm struggling to recall many other memorable moments. So, it, you know, it was... A bit of fun at the time, but I don't think it's a film I'll return to anytime soon. It's very interesting to hear you guys talk about Upgrade and especially how Matthew went on about it being a revenge film because I actually forgot to even mention that in my intro to the film. So the uh, experimental chip, 
decides that it can help the protagonist take revenge. And I guess what's interesting for me is that that was really pivotal for me when I was first watching it in cinemas. When I re-watched it, knowing the ending, the whole revenge plot seemed less, I don't know if less important, but it seemed uh, less of where maybe the focus of the story was for me. I mean, I was originally all going, well, this is a really cool revenge story with this chip and it's teaming up with its host to try and get back at the people. But then when I was viewing it the second time around, I was much more interested in, I guess, maybe the chip's motives and... I don't really want to spoil it too much. In terms of uh, emphasizing with the character, um, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I guess I found it quite pathetic because um, the uh, police don't seem to be able to do anything. So for me, I guess there was enough of an emotional hook that I could get into it. But like I said, the second time around, I was really more focused on the chip personal relationship rather than the revenge part of the story. But yeah, I don't know. I think it's an incredibly interesting film. It's quite interesting how you guys keep saying about, or at least Chris was saying, it's not sort of like late 90s, early zeros. I mean, I guess it's sort of got maybe similarities to something like maybe Dark City or The Matrix, but I guess just with the whole Cronenbergish vibe of it and just the way that it's got this chip that's talking him just reminded me so much of 80s horror especially brain damage but i know i'm digressing here so i will let somebody else take over no that's perfectly uh fair soul and uh, it, it, it does a lot of really interesting things with the world uh, it's in even though it's just the background so yeah, interesting pick and thank you for uh, introducing me to it so uh, tom what is uh, your third favorite film of 2018 so earlier on, Chris, you mentioned the Ballad of Buster Scruggs and how it had a Netflix release. And the next film in my top five is another film that had a, a wide Netflix release and not the uh, only film in my top five to uh, have a Netflix release, which just shows the kind of transition that the film industry has been making of late. So my third film is uh, Roma. Now, Alfonso Cuaron's stunningly beautiful film, Roma, follows the life of a middle-class family's maid through a tumultuous period in Mexico's history during the 1970s. It's presented in stark black and white due to Cuaron's desire to set a, a mood and ambience that's evocative of memory. And the film certainly achieves that with its semi-autobiographical tale that feels incredibly real. Even though Roma is a skipped-back human drama, it is far from devoid of the spectacle that Quaron has delivered in his fantastical outings as a director. The unforgettably emotional scene on the beach towards the film's finale is both earth-shattering and life-affirming, showcasing the work of a truly talented filmmaker who consistently tangles with my emotions. I haven't seen Roma or Roma, uh, as people will know if they've been listening to a few podcasts, I don't have an extremely high opinion of Alfonso Cuaron and everything that I read about the film sort of suggested to me that it wouldn't be up my alleyway. So it's on Netflix. I've got a Netflix account. When I feel more in the mood, I will sit down and watch it. But it's not something that's become a priority for me yet. Sorry, Tom. So Roma is a film that kind of feels like an aesthetic exercise at times and it kind of is somewhat troubling to think that, you know, this is Alfonso Cuaron making a film about his maid uh, when he was a kid. But I think <laughs> the film really gets past that uh, through especially two 
really beautiful, really impressive sequences. Uh, one of which is the birth uh, sequence, and the other one, of course, is the end with on the beach. I mean, Quaron is is great at doing these long, um, long shots, long takes uh, that really tell a, a very emotional story. And I think in both in both cases, it, it works quite well. So I, I have a somewhat of a limiting factor with this film, but I think those two scenes alone just definitely make it worth it. And it's a remarkable technical achievement, if if nothing else. Yeah, I quite like Roma as uh, well, especially the way it's shot. Well, it, it feels limited a little bit. It's still gorgeous black and white uh, photography. Uh, the camera work is great. I think it's really strong at just evoking emotions. I, I think my only real issue with the film is that it, it feels a little bit displaced. It, it's like you said, uh, Mathieu, it's a little odd that you essentially have Caron making a film about his mate. And, and it just seems like uh, his focus is just on how great she is for the family rather than really getting close to her and seeing her aspirations or, or life essentially even though he, he tries to focus on it it just feels like he can't really do that and it, it, it essentially just becomes this kind of uh, uh, legend or myth of his own childhood but it's it's a really well-made film it was really interesting to see him do this after films like gravity and just ground it so much more so uh, definitely a film i think most people who enjoy well-shot well-made films should see but not necessarily one of the greatest films of 2018 for me. It's, it's, a, it's a flip one for me between is, is it great or is it just good kind of film. So my number three is Birch of Passage by Ciro Guerra and Cristina Gallego, which does something to the traditional gangster story I have not seen before. Essentially stage it as part of a folk narrative or, or even a folk song blending together traditional customs with the with a violent tale of Colombian drug trafficking in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It, it simultaneously grounds and elevates the narrative in just this tribal life of the clan and just immersing you in the culture while it still has, uh, you know, this fairly traditional plot elements of drug trafficking and, and crime. It's really interesting to see just how it opens up, just not with, not with mafia activity, not with drug trade, but just a woman's rite of passage uh, of that tribe life, of those traditions, and just slowly easing in the, the other elements of, of just this gigantic rise and fall. And yes, it, it does have the gang violence, but it's also interesting what it chooses to show and focus on, which is rituals, hierarchies, the, the codes of tribal honor and how it's respected and broken. I mean, it's, it's almost lyrical with beautiful images washing over you uh, and the idea of dreams and legends merging with reality. It, it's also stripped bare to the bone yet colorful and expansive. It fuses elements of poetry, beauty, and even minimalism with pure brutality. It can, it can be genuinely suspenseful, but also beautiful with a sense of wonder in all the ugliness and melancholy. It's stunningly shot, wonderfully directed, perfectly restrained, and it really creates uh, a fairly unique experience that's simultaneously bare yet full, simple yet complex, uh, ugly 
yet beautiful. I had quite high hopes for Beards of Passage because I was a huge fan of Guerra's uh, previous film, Embrace of the Serpent, which channeled a lot of Herzog's work and Aguirre, Wrath of God. Now, Beards of Passage didn't quite live up to Embrace the Serpent. As Chris said, it's a familiar character arc, but it's placed in an unfamiliar setting. And that in itself is a very interesting aspect of the film. Um, It is beautifully shot. The visuals and the setting, they're all very mesmerising. And it's an engaging storyline, but it didn't quite reach the heights that I I was hoping for. But uh, definitely worth checking out if you're interested in unusual films about the drug trade. It could have just been uh, Scarface in the 80s in Colombia, and that would have been kind of enough for me. But it turned out to be so much more than that. One thing I would add to, to what you said, Chris, is that it really has this epic feel of these families battling, and, and Guerra really uses the different environments very well. And it has this, this Shakespearean kind of, um, I don't know, breadth to it. It feels grand. It feels like a, this, this grand tragedy especially in the way it's shot. Uh, the, the colors made me think of Ran to, to take another Shakespeare, direct Shakespearean adaptation this time. But yeah, I, I felt that Birth of Passage was a really, really special film, actually. Uh, I, I think it took this pretty basic, pretty familiar story and really made something grand with it. Yeah, I really enjoyed Birds of Passage also. I actually think I liked it more than Embrace of the Serpent although that was a very striking film with the way that it was shot in black and white. I guess I found the narrative more engrossing in Birds of Passage, just the way that it's trying to be like all this epic story of the upstart of the illegal drug trade in Colombia and just the way it expands everywhere from the 1960s up to the 1980s. I thought it was really great insight into customs, superstitions, beliefs, and like Matthew said, just all the different locations that we get to see. We get to see the vast deserts, the jungles, the urbanized areas. It's just a very engrossing, very sprawling tale. And I thought most of the actors did a really good job in them. I think from what I was reading at the time, most of them were non-professionals and they just were did a really good job of it. And it's really sort of like told from the perspective of Colombia's indigenous peoples, which I thought was quite interesting and not something that I've seen all the time in films out there. Well, and on that incredibly positive note, I don't believe nothing to refute or fight for. So let's all head over to our second favorite film of 2018, starting once again with Mathieu. Right, so my number two film is a film we've discussed at some length on the ICM FFF episode, so I won't dwell on it too much. And that's uh, Ruben Brandt Agyushto, or Ruben Brandt Collector. Uh, this is a Hungarian animated film by Milorad Kerstich about a psychiatrist who uses art to treat his patients, but is himself haunted by art-related childhood traumas. And this is a heist film, essentially, but the plot, though effective, is not really the point. The point is the animation, which uses characters in the style of cubist or surrealist paintings, so some have a face like a horse or three eyes or they're purely two-dimensionals, etc. And the whole film has that energy of early 20th century art movements like Dadaism, movements born of escaping the horror of World War I through embracing the absurdity of the world. And it's filled to the brim with Easter eggs and 
The animation is extremely dynamic, making this an enthralling fun ride, which also explores the transformative power that art holds over us. I'm also a huge fan of Ruben Brandt. I love how the art world and the realm of psychological trauma collide in this strange yet wonderful Hungarian animation. And it's a, a dazzling heist film at its heart, which incorporates influences from artists such as Picasso, Dali and, and Klimt to produce a, a modern take on the world of fine art. And one thing that is worth mentioning is the uh, inspired pop culture references throughout, in particular the lounge covers of Britney Spears and Radiohead. They shouldn't really work. It's such a strange amalgamation of, of music and animation. And although it should be jarring, it's such an unusual, unconventional film, and it, it just works and it ties it together um, really nicely. Um, the only thing that I'd, I'd point out is that the ending doesn't quite satisfy all of the questions raised by the intriguing storyline, but it's still a, an unforgettable film that really showcases some impressive animation uh, from some talented artists. Yeah, the animation is definitely a high point of Ruben Brandt, especially the character designs that both of you have talked about already. In terms of the character designs, I don't know, I actually thought they seemed, looked a little bit like horses, the characters, but obviously crossed a little bit with a Picasso painting. They're very interesting. My favourite part of the film was the nightmare sequences. So much of the film revolves about the Ruben Brandt character having all these nightmares about paintings coming to life and attacking him. I really love the surreal element of that, especially when we see really classic paintings there and the characters reaching out and trying to grab him and smash his face in. There's an especially funny part where it's a painting of a woman with a cat and then the cat goes and sits in a lap and the cat jumps out from a lap and attacks Ruben, which made sort of like her pussy actually literally coming out and attacking him. So some really interesting touches like that in there. And I do have to say the his office with the aquarium walls and floors, you know, absolutely blew my mind. I thought it's amazing animated art direction there. But other than the nightmare sequences, the film didn't really work that well for me. The detective investigation angle felt very by the books for me. And there's sort of like a little part where he's chasing after female uh, robber and suddenly breaks into a bit of a song i'm sort of like well, this is like a scooby-doo episode and um, yeah none of that really grabbed me at all unfortunately and i also thought for a heist movie it was very short on characterization in the best heist movies you know each of the characters like in the oceans films are all developed well in depth Whereas in Ruben Brown, I just felt most of the patients, other than the female one, I thought were very interchangeable. So, I mean, that part of it didn't work for me, but whenever the film was in nightmare mode and then the characters coming out of the painting and attacking him, whenever the film was in nightmare mode, you know, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I mean, I, I've already sung the prices of uh, Ruben Brand Collector in the uh, ICMFF episode, and it's uh, it's a great work. I mean, I completely agree with Saul that the story is quite lackluster, but uh, this story is really just an excuse to play around with his style, and I, I think what I called it at the time was his kitsch and loving it. 
It's a story about art heist with characters essentially looking exactly like pieces of art and just having fun with that, uh, playing with the visual style. Uh, and I think it, it is pulpy and it could easily, with normal animation, even have been a Pixar film, you know, something, uh, something like The Incredibles or uh, if it was DreamWorks, something more akin to Despicable Me. <laughs> but the art style really just makes it come alive and uh, it, it feels unique because of it. And uh, it... That's the reason why we're talking about it, not really anything else, even though it's, it is a fun film, it's a perfectly delightful film, but it's the art style that really makes it great. So, Sol, what's your second favorite film of 2018? Okay, so the film that I've decided to choose for my second favorite is a film that I recently rewatched. It's uh, popped up on movie, so actually, no, I'd say by the time this episode's edited, it probably won't still be streaming there any longer. Uh, look, it's an excellent film if you can find it. It's called Unsane. It's a Steven Soderbergh film. And like Upgrade, it's a film that I found even more chilling and I guess even unsettling upon revision, knowing the plot going into it and seeing it unfold. But basically, you've got this unsuspecting woman who goes in to a visit at a psychiatrist and she ends up signing some forms that she's told is just general paperwork and she ends up accidentally committing herself to this mental institution and it's a very interesting film because it sort of sits well alongside side effects and contagion which are the films that soderbergh made last decade about the health system and the flaws within it so it sits well alongside those, but it's also just a really great thriller. The film does have a few convenient coincidences that even on the second time round, I couldn't quite get my head around. But I just found it absolutely riveting, right down to the final freeze fame. When I first saw it, I saw it when it came out in cinemas, and it, for people who don't know, it's a film that Soderbergh shot on an iPhone. But as we know from Tangerine, which Sean Baker did, some of the best-looking films can be shot on an iPhone. And the film just looks absolutely exquis exquisite. Like usual, um, Soderbergh has this great eye for super-saturated colours, and the film looks just as great as that. And when I saw it in theatres, I was sort of like, oh, this is really cool because... The unusual aspect ratio sort of gave the feeling of being watched and really heightened the paranoia. The second time around when I was re-watching, I was watching on a movie on the app on my iPad. And of course, you know, iPhone film watching on the iPad didn't even notice the aspect ratio at all. And I don't know if that's more of a testament to watching it on the iPad or just being so immersed in it. But yeah, it really didn't bother me at all. I just think the film is got some really interesting and really scary things to say about how the way health systems can operate uh, incredibly well acted too by claire foy and amy irving as her mother and it's just really very i don't know i would like to say contemporary but it feels feels like very applicable to these days and in this ever interconnected world the way that the film looks at stalking it's about medical institutions, it's about paranoia, it's just about all these different things, and I just found it even more unsettling the second time around when I watched it, so I was like, this is a film I'm going to have to put down as my number two for the podcast. 
Unsane is the film I saw in theaters also, and I thought it played really effectively on this very deep, uh, extremely strong fear of not being believed, right? Of everyone thinking you're you're insane and and you're not, and after a point you just can tell who is right. And I think that's really anchored by Claire Foy's performance. Uh, Claire Foy is an actress I really love, and I think she's great in this film. And it's yet another example of her range, right? It's not a f- not the kind of role we- we've seen her in since or before then. Uh, I don't think so. So yeah, I, I think Unsane is a film that that works quite well. I, I do think the plot is a little wonky in some places. Uh, it, it works in the moment is what is important. And yeah, I would really emphasize Claire Foy's performance as making the film work. Yeah, I just want to say that I, I just really love uh, the style of this film. I mean, shooting the whole thing on iPhone is not just impressive, uh, but it really gives you this unnerving angle because characters are not quite shown as you used to when you use regular lenses. It feels a bit like these older digital cameras as well, like uh, Asaya's as Demon Lover. It's really unsettling just from the start. It feels more uh, raw and uh, bare-boned. And it just immediately sets you into this atmosphere of unease even before anything else has gone down. I absolutely agree that uh, Claire Foy is great in this. And it also uh, belongs, uh, like you mentioned, Matthew, in this tradition of films which essentially makes us question the nature of reality. I mean, we can think back to, uh, to you know, Jodie Foster in Flight Plan or, uh, or the White Harlan film, Verwurtsburen, uh, and the remake, British remake, So Long at the Fair, where you just don't exactly know, you think you know, and it also plays uh, just with, uh, with you in terms of it's not just that you're watching this person not being sure if she's insane or not, but you're not sure if she's insane or, or not. And it, I really enjoyed that part of it. I, I think what did break it down, I won't get into it because it would spoil the film, is that there is an element in the film to me that just was too hard to believe. I thought that one large part of kind of the climatic action that kind of tying it all together, tying the story all together, just was so unbelievable to me that it couldn't uh, reach greatness for me. But aside from that, it's really immersive cinematic experience, and I just love the style. And it's just an extremely impressive project. I agree with a lot of your comments there, Chris. It's definitely got a really immersive sense to it. The way that it's shot on an iPhone really adds to the sense of paranoia and unease, like you said. And it does start out um, with quite an eye-opening expose on the health system, and it has a lot to say there, but it, it does sadly descend into what feels like a bit of a schlocky thriller towards the end. I really like how Matthew described it as the plot goes a bit wonky, you know, which it does sadly uh, bring down the enjoyment of the film for me. But I do really enjoy the sense of ambiguity around films that deal with mental hospitals where you're unsure if um, certain people are actually sane or not. That aspect of the film really appeals to me because things like Cuckoo's Nest, Shutter Island, two of the greats of the genre, uh, really build on that. And that aspect works really well. It just doesn't quite deliver the the final payoff that uh, perhaps you're hoping for from quite a strong build-up. Very interesting comments there, guys, because I didn't actually talk about that much about the whole insane or not and fear of not being believed 
But yeah, that's obviously a very strong element of Unsane and one that Soderberg handles extremely well. You're not sure at first if she really is just this unstable and then the way that she reacts to the other patients in just such irrational ways makes you question, you know, is she really seeing the stalk or not? In terms of becoming a wonky thriller, I'm not sure about that. I think the thriller elements sort of work for me well because there's a lot of conversations without spoiling it too much towards the end where you get a bit more of a psychological edge or at least the therefore a character gets a bit more of an edge on psychologically and I thought that was handled very well. It was just maybe some of the coincidences building up to that that put me off a little bit with it. But I loved the way the film ended. As I mentioned before, it ends on a freeze frame, which I think is absolutely pitch perfect. And without spoiling it too much, the whole final scene just conveys so much to me how with any sort of trauma or bad experience, you can sort of get over it, but it's always still got to linger there a little bit. So... Yeah, I just love the film for that and the way it sort of conveys that. Yeah, it definitely does that really well, Saul. And moving on to Tom's second favourite film. So my second favourite film of 2018 also happens to be Matteo's number one favourite film of 2018. So we've got great tastes in common there and the film is Annihilation. So we'll look forward to talking about that very soon. That, that brings me on to my number two, uh, which is Happy as Lazaro by Alice Rohrwacher, which is an incredibly uh, difficult film to describe, really. It almost feels like it's a portrait of a saint with, with a degree of gentleness. Uh, and I don't really know if there's a better word for it than that. Uh, perhaps naivete or innocence, uh, etc. That, that can just be felt, like this gentleness in this character can just really be felt. It's unsettling and saddening. I, I think what speaks to me most in Happy as Lazaro is the extreme contrast between innocence and the real world. I think there is something almost perverse in the visual contrast between the four community of farmers to which Lazaro belongs. I mean, this world could almost be believed to be a community at the turn of the 20th century with muted colors and a mixture of realist and romantic exposition. And that of the, uh, to use a slightly antiquated term that doesn't really jump that smoothly off the lips anymore, uh, the rulers, I mean, the Marquisa in the castle and perhaps most thoroughly symbolized uh, by uh, the young Marquise, Tancredi, with his bleached hair, rock and roll t-shirt, skinny jeans, and there's this gloriously red jacket. It, it almost feels like an insult to the senses, but it becomes something greater than life, especially as we see this so-called friendship between Lazaro and Tancredi grow. And Honestly, it's painful. I mean, Lazaro is entirely subservient and he'll follow any command with just this purity of acceptance to the point of even drawing his own blood without flinching, always with the same earnestness in his uh, face. It's truly, truly painful to watch. And, and this complete willingness to serve and the complete 
honesty and this incomprehension of anything immoral and the inability to truly understand the world around him, believing essentially anything he he is told. I mean, it comes through beautifully to just give one example uh, at the very beginning where he's taken advantage of by a farmhand tricking him to take his place, watching out for the wolves. And it's, it's not even deceiving him properly. He just tells Alsara that uh, he doesn't have to worry. He'll come running if he falls out. And when Lazaro hears the wolves, he calls out, and he calls out, and he calls out, but no one comes. And without disrupting his worldview at all, he simply just accepts it and, and sits down and stays there watching out for the wolves. I mean, I can't really get into all of what this film does without spoiling it, but there's elements of magical realism here, which makes the film feel even more unique and incredible and allows uh, it to study uh, poverty and the situation of the poor in a much larger way, giving it a power and a punch. And I really think that this film should establish Alice Rohrwacher as one of the most intriguing directors working today, as I can't really think of any films that really, truly compares to Happy As Lazaro, unless you want to bring our minds to something like Bresson's My Friend Balthazar. I mean, there's really nothing like it, and it's a film that stays with you, or at least stayed with me, for, for a long time. It's interesting to hear you mention, Chris, that you can't think of any films that are similar to Happy As Lazaro, because one actually sprung to mind while I was watching it, and unfortunately not in a good way. Look, I did like Happy as Lazaro a lot overall. I thought it was incredibly fascinating, his journey, and some of the stuff that happens in the second half of the film, which I guess you can't really discuss without spoilers. But the film that sprung to mind for me was Being There, the Peter Sellers film, which is a film that when I first watched, I thought was incredibly funny. And then when I rewatched it after watching, after working with autistic children, I realized actually it's not very funny. It's incredibly mean spirited that they're making fun of this autistic character. And with Lazaro, I guess I wasn't quite sure if he was meant to be a simpleton or someone who has trouble understanding the outside world, whether he's just benevolent like nobody else is out there. And most of the readings of Lazaro seem to say, well, yes, he is just incredibly kind in an unkind world. And I think that's an amazing dynamic. But just some of the stuff in the second half of the film, especially when he gets outside his village, I think I can say that without too much of a spoiler. Just some of the experiences there just brought to mind being there and thought, well, this is a character coping in a world that he doesn't understand. And just made it a bit uneasy for me. I wasn't sure if the film was, I guess, similar to the Peter Sellers film, whether it's making fun of him for it. So, yeah, I don't know. I enjoyed it overall. I thought it was well done. I liked the way that I didn't know where it was going at first with the fake kidnapping. I was like, oh, this is interesting. I wonder where it's going to go. It kept me on edge the whole time. Uh, yeah, I wasn't sure if it was a bit of a nasty undercurrent or just the structure of it, which uh, brought the film being there to mind. I mean, I, just to say, I... I really don't like being there and I think it's partially for the same reason but being there is also a bit of a Forrest Gump type of film. Essentially this character with limited abilities goes through this incredible experience and in Lazaro it's, it's uh, kind of different it's not good things or, or 
that they technically coming to do is just essentially more and more twists of fate that turns against him. And I do think that when I say it's kind of a portrait of a saint, I do think that that's where it plays in with the magical realist elements we can't really get into. But the way it deals with the character, uh, I think it's quite clear that it, it does single him out for his unique innocence. And it does, in a way, reward him for it, but not with the consequences uh, being uh, exactly the best without really spoiling anything else. I can certainly see the comparisons to being there. Although I'd like to draw on a, a comparison a bit closer to home with um, the Italian uh, classic neorealist fantasy Miracle in Milan. I feel like it shares a very similar vibe to that film and also focuses on a, a poverty-stricken group in, in Italy. And I feel like the director is channeling a lot of the uh, energy from the film through that um, reference point. I really enjoyed Happy as Lazaro. It's a very quirky and, and charming drama. As Chris mentioned, there's uh, muted natural colours throughout, but it actually re- works really well in this situation. It kind of chimes with the presentation of Lazaro in this plain outfit he wears throughout, stripped back, so we can just focus on the, the saintly nature of the, of the character. And I think that the subtle, fantastical elements uh, work really well throughout they're not too jarring or overbearing they work naturally and it's it's really surprised me to learn that um, part of it was based on a a true story and it's also worth noting that the uh, lead actor was plucked from uh, thousands of hopefuls he'd never acted in a film before and having a quick look on imdb he's not been in anything since and I think it's a, a really impressive and, and powerful turn from someone who's new to uh, featuring so prominently in front of the camera. It's interesting that you bring up Oazar Baltazar, Chris. I haven't seen being there, so I, can, I can't comment on that, or Miracle in Milan for that matter. But I hadn't seen Oazar Baltazar when I saw Lazaro um, Felice, but I think the comparison is quite telling in what didn't work for me in it. Because, I mean, in Oazar Baltazar, you, the main character is a donkey, but you also have Anja Zemsky, who is giving a performance right next to it. And I think you are kind of lacking that anchor in Happy as Lazaro or Lazaro Felice. And I also think it's telling that you're comparing it to a film where the main character is an animal. Uh, you also mentioned, you and Tom, how saintly uh, Lazaro is. And that's, I have a problem with that. I think the way some stories use people with mental disabilities as being kind of representative of innocence or goodness, you know, it's kind of essentializing them and making them more into objects than subjects. And yeah, he is really an object in terms of storytelling. Everything happens to him. He doesn't do anything. And I guess that's okay when it's a donkey. I have more issues when it's a human, (laughs) I suppose. I didn't hate the film, I think. There are some interesting performances in it, especially by um, Tom Credy. Uh, I, I can't really get into that too much. Uh, but yeah, the, the, I think there's definitely some good things in it. I enjoy the magical realism of it, the, what happens in the film, without being more specific. Uh, but yeah, I have an issue with that use of the main character. 
I love how you point out that I'm essentially comparing him uh, to a donkey, and that's not really the intent, though. Uh, I, I do think as characters, they, they are actually quite similar in that uh, My Friend Baltzar is also an attempt uh, at a portrait of a saint, and there are characters who uh, are treated horribly throughout. And that finishes up all of our picks for fifth to second place. And we're finally on to our number one favorite films of 2018. So we kind of got a preview of what your choice is already, Matthew, but uh, do you want to present Annihilation and why it stood out to you the way it did? So as Tom mentioned, my number one is Annihilation. Um, the film has been compared to Stalker for its basic plot of a group of people going into a forbidden place where a mysterious entity is affecting reality in strange ways. But I feel it's actually closer to another Tarkovsky film, Solaris, in the way it uses an alien presence to explore character and tackle existential issues. We talked a bit in the space exploration episode about the fact that so many of the greatest science fiction films are thrillers in one way or another. And of course, the best are the ones that really succeed at both being visual experiences as well as intellectual explorations of sci-fi topics. This is a shining example, exploring, as the title suggests, the notion of self-destruction, both on a very personal, intimate level, with Natalie Portman's characters and some of the others, but also on the level of life itself, constantly adapting and imitating what's around it. And Garland uses those ideas to create incredible sequences. There are two scenes in this film that I would count amongst my favorite scenes ever. The first one I already talked about in the What Scares Us episode is the scene with the bear, or the bear-like thing, which has incorporated human elements in its voice, and that's one of the most terrifying, bone-chilling inventions ever put on screen. And the other one occurs near the end of the film. Let's say it's a confrontation taking place in a lighthouse, and it's a remarkably imaginative sequence using visual effects to create a scene that's thrilling, disturbing, and thought-provoking all at the same time. Now, I don't think the film is perfect. Some of the characterization for the secondary characters is admittedly a bit shallow, but Garland is able to use even those characters in remarkable ways. I'm thinking specifically of... Tessa Thompson's character and her last scene in the film. It has some roughness around the edges, but it delivers more unforgettable, even profound moments than any other film from this year. And, you know, there's this Howard Hawks quote about a good film being like three great scenes and no bad ones. And <laughs> I think Annihilation is a, is a good example of that. That's a wonderful description of Annihilation by Matthew there. I'm going to cover a lot of the similar ground because... I feel just as passionately about this film as, as he does. I mean, it's in an intelligent and unpredictable science fiction horror centering around a, a mysterious meteor that is, has landed near an abandoned lighthouse and has a strange effect on the surrounding area. And we are introduced to this idea through a team of female scientists and military personnel who head into the strange zone to discover more about what is happening and they encounter unimaginable horrors along the way. Now it's a visually stunning and often breathtaking science fiction film. Alex Garland has done an exceptional job of translating the source novel to the screen and it culminates in an incredibly emotional sequence centred around the lighthouse. 
Now, it's not quite as revelatory or transcendental as the final sequences in, say, 2001, but it comes pretty damn close to that with its strikingly imaginative depiction of the life form that has travelled to Earth with the meteor. Now, I honestly think that this is a brilliant film. Anyone who enjoys science fiction and horror and wants to take a punt on films that are not afraid of trying something different and new with the ideas, it doesn't follow the tried and tested path, which is a great thing. So, yeah, I think everyone should check out this film. So, uh, I, I guess uh, I'm the one who has to uh, bring you negativity then, because I'll, I did like Annihilation quite a bit. It also came as a colossal disappointment after uh, Alex Garland's last film, Ex Machina, uh, which managed to create just this incredible personal tension and allowed actors to shine on a very thin budget. And Annihilation, on the other hand, uh, does not let its stars shine at all. I mean, you might disagree on this, but I just feel that Portman just is flat. And Oscar Isaac, who, who gave such a great performance in Garland's previous film, has no presence whatsoever. That's slightly more excusable given what happens to his character. Uh, but <laughs> I really think that the level of attention to acting and character here is, is almost akin to uh, <laughs> Aliens or, or a Resident Evil film. I, I think you, you could joke and say it's, you know, Stalker and Solaris uh, meets, uh, <laughs> meets Resident Evil because like in terms of character dialogue it's really thin and that that can work really well if you go further all out on style or beauty or mystery or action etc but to me at least annihilation felt like a kind of a middle ground where it didn't really dip its toes into any of this and it just feels a little bit flat especially with the framing it looks really good. It has some great scenes, uh, which Tom and Mathieu uh, mentioned earlier. But as a whole, uh, this film is just a relatively good one for me. Very interesting to hear Chris describe the film as a colossal disappointment. I know that people listening can't see the little chat, but uh, you should have seen Tom's reaction when Chris said that. Uh, look, Annihilation for me was a mild disappointment. I do think it's a very good film, but then again, I absolutely loved um, Ex Machina, and I don't think this one's anywhere near in the same league. What I really liked about Annihilation was the whole build-up to it. So like other people have said, it's very Tarkovsky in approach there. You know, all, the whole mystery of the zone, or, or whatever they call it in the film, I thought once the film started to deliver answers, it actually became a lot less intriguing for me. And I know some of you guys have talked about the characters already, but it's sort of like we're told these people have been volunteering. They've volunteered for the suicide mission because of these voids in their life. And yet I found that the sci-fi content was pushed much harder than the character drama, whereas you get something like Solaris, which is being compared to that's very heavy on the character drama, uh, perhaps even more so than the sci-fi content, whereas the sci-fi content always gets much more focused on Annihilation. But look, uh, I thought it was a very well done film. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the whole mysteries of it. 
I guess, just the way that it was celebrated and acclaimed when it first came out gave me very high expectations, especially coming off a film like Ex Machina. And then sitting down watching Annihilation, I thought, well, this is a good film, but it's a film that I thought, well, maybe if it was a bit more maybe mysterious, spent more time on the build-up, maybe a bit more time on the characterization, I might have warmed to slightly more. I can see what you guys mean with the characters or Chris with um, the performances. I think Natalie Portman is just that her character is very closed off, right? She's not very expressive. So I, I, her performance is very understated. It's, it's maybe not, I mean, it's not a great performance, I would say, but I think it works fine for what the film requires. However, I would say Jennifer Jason Lee and Gina Rodriguez and even Tessa Thompson, their performances I, I thought were quite good. And it's true that the characterization is a little shallow, it goes a, a little fast, but again, I mentioned um, the, that key scene with Tessa Thompson, which I, I can't really describe, but I think you know what I mean. And I guess the film, unlike Ex Machina, Ex Machina, it, it was visually gorgeous, but a lot of it required a conversation, right, to, to develop the characters. I think Garland is trying to be much more visually focused here. And again, when I think of, of, of those characters, I think more of where they go eventually and what happened to them and what that means. I mean, I don't disagree again that, that the characterization could maybe have been a little deeper for those, those secondary characters, but I think he makes it work. And again, I think the, those standout scenes really elevate that to a degree that I'm willing to, to forgive some shallowness in, in that aspect. I would agree with Matthew on that. The performances are serviceable. Um, whilst they're not impressive, they do a perfect job of conveying what Garland is going for. Here, the spectacle is in the, the visual feast that we're presented with rather than the character development. And I think that works perfectly well in, in terms of, of this story. And one thing I forgot to mention was this is the second film that um, sadly went straight to a, a Netflix release. And it's really frustrating to think that I didn't have the opportunity to view this on the big screen because I think it would have been perfect to watch it in the cinema. I enjoyed it in my home cinema with my setup. I've got a great setup, but nothing quite conjures up the uh, the magic of seeing it in a, on a big cinema screen. So it is disappointing that this seems to be the way that things are going for a lot of filmmakers uh, moving forward. Yeah, I can definitely imagine Annihilation being even stronger on the big screens. That's definitely a loss. It does look great. Uh, and moving on to Saul, what's your number one favorite film of 2018? Uh, my number one film was already mentioned by Matthew because it was his number five, and it's Black Klansman, Spike Lee film. It's about a black undercover detective who manages to infiltrate a Ku Klux Klan chapter in the 1970s. And the film is just a really great mixture of anger, comedy, suspense, thrills. I mean, Spike Lee has never been known for his subtlety, and this isn't an especially subtle film, but it's not just his anger at racism and other things going on. It's also mixed with lots of laugh-out-loud comedy, lots of suspense. And the film's not just about the African-American character, it's also about the Jewish police officer who helps be his face when he infiltrates the movement. And it's about him recognizing his own Jewish roots that he never embraced himself. 
wing is forced to deny them in front of KKK members. So a lot going on in the film. It's very dynamically edited. There's quite a bit of split screen across different angles. But even just some of the way the scenes are cut together, it's very dynamically done. It's got a great music score by Terence Blanchard that actually finally got him an Oscar nomination. Uh, but the one thing, the one thing that really sells the film for me is the ending. And when I saw it in cinemas, I was not prepared for it. Not the, you know, physical ending where he puts down the phone, but the actual part that Lee taps on after his narrative is finished. That absolutely devastated me. I left the cinema in tears, and I thought it was just amazing how after, you know, Spike Lee had kept me laughing out loud pretty much for two hours, he managed to emotionally shatter me also and just leave me in such a daze afterwards. And I was a bit nervous going in and re-watching the film, and I did re-watch it for the podcast because a lot of people were complaining at the time, oh, it's such a dated ending, and, you know, it's not going to have the same effect, you know, when Trump is no longer in office. And I just re-watched it, and the ending was still incredibly powerful for me. Uh, just the footage that Spike Lee manages to put together the way he cuts it together, it's only a few minutes long. It might even be less than two minutes long, but all the clips he puts together just makes you really consider the fact that even though his film is set in the 1970s, some of the stuff to do with racism and the way different institutions like the KKK still manage to exist, that it's still a part of society today. This is a film that's set in the past, but one that also recognises that certain problems of the past are still problems of today. Yes, obviously, Black Lensman is also a film I loved. It was my number five. And I think it's a remarkable achievement on, on Spike Lee's part that he manages to do, to balance these tones, right? This, to make a comedy about the KKK is just such a difficult exercise. And I think I will agree with Saul on the score, in particular, the Terence Blanchard score, I think is, is amazing and really key in maintaining that balance and as well as the central performance, John David Washington. I think his performance in Black Handsman is one of the best performances in, in recent years uh, in terms of a lead performance. He's effortlessly going from, well, he, he's almost always in a comedic style, but you always keep that kind of identity struggle behind it as a cop in this, in this context. And I think he's absolutely brilliant. And Adam Driver is, is great as well. About the ending, I'm not a, a huge fan of it as Saul. I generally dislike when historical films end with, and then this happened, or, or they kind of throw reality in your face. But I think in this specific case, it, it works. It's not what I love about the film, but I think it works precisely because of that command of tone that Spike Lee has throughout the film. It feeds like an appropriate button to this film that is both about ridiculizing the KKK as a bunch of idiots, but also showing that even a bunch of idiots can be very dangerous. <laughs> that I think I think the only thing I'll uh, disagree with uh, in terms of what you guys uh, said is that I don't really think Spike Lee managed to balance uh, the styles as well as he could have. You have several uh, kind of tie-ins with black exploitation at the time, which kind of switches up the style, and those things are really fun and they stand out, but they don't really match that well with 
the rest of the film. Now, I agree completely with the performances. They're strong. It's a fun, it's a fun film and a nervingly fun film. I, I really like the kind of uh, phone banter. And, and uh, I also really think that uh, one person you did not mention was the way that Topher Grace portrays David Duke, which is this, uh, <laughs> which is a, as a, essentially a bit of a bumbling uh, buffoon with a lot of self-confidence. And I think it works really well that dynamic on the phone and in in real life works that phone relationship uh, between john david washington and topher grace is one of my favorite parts of the film i think some of the other elements are a little bit lackluster but uh, it's it's a very enjoyable film i also really enjoyed the film as sol mentioned uh, spike lee isn't known for his subtlety and it's a very blunt social commentary about law enforcement and racism in the usa but it still manages to be an exceptional crime drama and it still manages to be incredibly funny and it's impressive that Lee manages to balance those tones quite well. Um, I agree that John David Washington is excellent in the lead and Adam Driver is also brilliant as his partner in the undercover operation. Now, lots has been said about the ending and I agree that it's a total surprise and, and quite jarring and sometimes endings like this do feel like cheat tactics to manipulate the audience's emotions, though it does feel quite fitting here and it hits particularly hard. And, you know, I, I feel like it's a, it's a fitting ending that really helps to get Lee's message across. So, yeah, I've really enjoyed this film. A quick thing I'd like to add, Chris, on what you said on managing different styles. One thing that Spike Lee does here that I think is remarkable is the way he uses uh, Birth of a Nation, you know, the, the silent film that was used as a recruitment ad, essentially, by the KKK, and the way he he shows that uh, that the KKK members are watching it, and then he uses the editing techniques that are famously used in The Birth of a Nation to kind of uh, show both the black and the, uh, well, white supremacists' Uh, communities, and to make a parallel there that is very bold, I think, because it's clear that these are not the same things, but there are also commonalities that, what I really like is that it is blunt, but it is not simplistic, and I think that um, that montage, that that moment of editing is is really a great moment in the film. Yeah, I do have to agree with Matthew, that's probably one of my favourite um, edited sequences there. Just, you know, John David Washington watching with such horror in his face, the birth of a nation and the cutting against the uh, black folks talking about their history. And, yeah, no, that's definitely a very powerful part of it. I also agree with Chris about the uh, Topher Grace scenes uh, on the telephone conversations. Those were definitely very well handled. And I didn't even realise it was Topher Grace the first time I watched the film. It was only afterwards when I looked it up I didn't even realize because of, I guess, makeup. I'm used to seeing him in that 70s show, but I thought he nailed the performance there. I probably agree with Chris about the black exploitation style. I'm not a big fan of black exploitation cinema, and I'd say probably those parts towards the beginning didn't work so well for me, but I thought the part towards the end did. I thought that was incredibly well done. In general, yeah, there's a lot of different tones and styles going on, but I, I guess it just really worked for me. So we've made it. Here we are. My favourite film of 2018, and it goes to Gaspar Noé's excellent film, 
Climax. Now, the first time I watched Climax left me feeling like I'd just come back from the most disturbing hedonistic weekend of my life, but I'd only been to the cinema. It was intense and hypnotic and sickening and everything that you could want from a Gaspar Noé film. Now, Climax unfolds close to real time and follows a dance troupe whose night of partying at a secluded location turns into a devastating nightmare when their sangria is laced with hallucinatory drugs. There's a striking one-shot dance routine at the start, which is utterly mesmerising, with the choreography and the camera work working in perfect harmony with the entrancing music. Noé is renowned for his transgressive cinema and continues to push boundaries with his challenging films that are not for the squeamish. And the twisted and graphic violence in Climax is incredibly memorable and paints a lurid picture of the most extreme drug-fueled party imaginable. It's the kind of film that leaves you absolutely reeling and stunned with the direction it takes. And this is the kind of reaction I cherish the most when encountering a new favourite film. I mean, I really enjoyed Climax. I mean, it just missed out on being in my uh, personal 10. And I just love the way uh, No uh, just shoots his films, really. It, I completely agree with what you're talking about, with the decadence and just feeling dirty. Because he really just draws you in on this dance, or in, in, in this essentially just desolate one compound. It, it really is a single location film in so many ways. It just makes it feel so large so alive and when he goes into that final shot which i think is about 40 plus minutes long it just becomes terribly unnerving trip into complete madness in a way that we rarely see so it's just absolutely a spectacular work really i also really enjoyed climax i thought it was really interesting and very creative and what I found especially intriguing about it is that it's been labelled as a horror film and it's not really one in a traditional sense, but I actually thought it worked very nicely as a bit of an alternative take on zombieism. So you've got these characters who just continue to instinctively dance while others lose control of their faculties. And it's sort of a bit like, I guess, Romero's uh, Dawn of the Dead, except, you know, set in like a party or whatever. And they just keep going on their instincts, even when the drugs take hold and everything goes out of control. Uh, the camera work is absolutely amazing, constantly circling um, overhead of the characters. The camera gradually turning upside down to mirror the effects of the drugs. It's just an absolutely breathtaking film to look at. And film tropes, even going as far as film credits, they're all turned on its head by Noe in during the course of the film. So, yeah, no, I absolutely love Climax. I thought it was incredibly good. And I was very excited when Tom said uh, earlier on that it was his number one film for 2018. Right, so I'm going to be the outlier here. I mean, there's no denying Gaspar Noé is a remarkable visual storyteller and stylist. I wasn't as impressed by the first um, dance long take as, as, as many like Tom were, but maybe because I had heard of it before. And I still did enjoy it a lot and found that Noé's long takes, generally they help immersing you in this environment as it grows more and more claustrophobic and when things devolve into this you know, ultimate bad trip. I am, however, troubled by the content here. It seems kind of 
reactionary in the way that it punishes hedonistic characters for, you know, enjoying life to extreme degrees. Now, I don't think that's necessarily the intent, and that doesn't really seem like Noah's thing, but it feels like a statement that maybe life is worth living to its fullest, even if the consequences are dire, but that's not how it comes off to me, especially because it's framed in this horror genre that is often conservative, or at least in slashers, that, that's what it made me think of anyway. Of course, if you bring up zombie films and Romero, it goes in a different direction, but I guess that's not the vibe I got. And one other thing I found troubling, and I don't, I would hope it's not on purpose, but basically all the violence uh, committed in this film is committed by black people, and all, most of them, most of it on white people, and like the most shocking moment of the film is a black person committing violence on, on a white person. I, I don't think Noe intended that, but I couldn't escape it, I guess, because he has such a diverse group of dancers. And I guess, yeah, it, it, it seems crazy to me that he didn't notice that he was doing that. And just the whole thing, it, it made me un- uncomfortable in ways that I don't think was intended, even though I, I can certainly appreciate the, the artistry and, uh, and the technical achievement of it. You make some very interesting points there, Matthew. I hadn't even considered that about the violence, I suppose, because, you know, every time I watch it, I just become so immersed in the film that that kind of thing doesn't jump out to me or or strike me as, you know, something so noticeable. Another thing I thought was interesting was how you said it's, you know, about living life to the fullest and the hedonistic style. I would see it more as kind of a a cautionary tale behind it. You know, I, I would say that it's, you know, relates the dangers of these kind of substances to people in a way that is kind of very blunt and obvious and so it's interesting that we have different perspectives on that but i think i was more drawn to the film for its incredible visuals wonderful soundtrack and vivid horrors than the kind of uh, social commentary aspects that perhaps you've uncovered uh, during your viewing of it no i think i agree with with your your take that it's a cautionary tale but i guess I don't really like that, I guess. I mean, you shouldn't do like super hard drugs all the time, but I guess I don't need Gaspar Noé to, to make, uh, I don't know, uh, how do you call them? The, the ads on TV don't do drugs. I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Is this Reefer Madness of 2018? I'm sure that's a very funny quiz, but I don't have that reference, sorry. Uh, Reefer Madness, you know the film about the dangers of marijuana, right? But uh, but no, I mean, I, I completely uh, didn't notice some of the things you brought up, Matthew. That's definitely uh, some potential things that could harm a rewatch if, if that seems uh, alarming anyway. The way I wouldn't expect that to be no intention. Uh, for me, I think what really worked here is just that trip into extreme madness and paranoia. I think he captured it so well with his colors and his camera and there's the way he creates horror it is both unusual and again unnerving so i think this is a very visceral film for me not really a film with that much focused on character or content it's just the visceral experience of leading into a truly uh truly unnerving and insane world and if it has the message of kids don't do drugs i mean i don't really mind too much so, Chris, I'd love to hear what's your favourite film of 2018. 
Thanks, Tom. So I'm actually really excited, as truly, I do not care if we go down history as barbarians by Rado Yuda. It's the kind of cinema I'm really hardwired to love. I mean, how could I not? John Luc Godard is, after all, my favorite director, and this has so many similarities to what I love about Godard, from the multi-layered commentary comedy to social dissection coated in sarcasm to just an overabundance of meta just characters observing screens and just the camera shooting screens and TVs it just, and, and playing with the context of what is and isn't real. I mean, it, it truly has it all and just served right up on a platter as this kind of extreme wonder of Rectian imagination. I just love it. So let, let's just, just immerse you in this experience of seeing it. Uh, we start with a recorded court session, just setting the stage inside a TV with a, a timestamp, letting us know the, just the context of fascism and far-right nationalism. And, and then the lead actress introduces herself. She mentions her co-stars and, and starts exploring the similarities and the differences between herself and her character all in a major prop room with guns and uniforms around her. It just plays with this meta-reality so much, and it has a lot of fun with it. Now, I'm not sure if everyone will find it as amusing as me, but just the idea of a director making a film about Romania's fascist past by following a director staging a play about Romania's fascist past and then just letting us rest in this kind of purgatory of its execution is just immediately uh, appealing to me. And this is where just this type of Brechtianism becomes both entertaining and revealing. So yes, the film actively engages in how Romania does not face its own history and refuses to engage and acknowledge its past. And we get long lists of letters, facts, accounts, including uh, the Nazis actually finding Romanians too extreme and eager to murder Jews. But it, it does this beyond a second layer. So to just to look at one scene where they decide which hateful banner to essentially display above the hanged bodies of the victims of the massacre in Odessa. They read out all of these horrifying, horrifying slogans of that time. And you just hear this more uh, banal exchange between the production where they, they just choose not to go with certain slogans because they're, for instance, just too long. But by doing this, you know, we are exposed to all of the, the slogans and we just get this much greater image of what is happening. And second, and this is where just the humor and darkly comedic elements come into play, we see the disagreements on set, we see the discussions that happen, from participants being furious that the play is anti-Romanian, including shouting hate speech or, or dubious speech, to this charming, mischievous devil character, this sleazy bureaucrat, which is just eager to censor the play and just spouting off any uh, whataboutism and arguments in the book. And by the time we then get to the ending with the play starting, you have heard all of the arguments against it. Uh, at least quite a few of them, and you have seen the awkward exchanges. You, you have even gotten distance from all of this by seeing the flaws and messiness of the director's 
own life to the point that it doesn't actually feel preachy. You are adequately detached. And let me just say that when it flows into the play, it feels real painstakingly real. Even the camera work changes. It's like you're watching a real play. And that's what makes, especially the reactions of the audience, which I can't really get into without spoiling it too much, just so unsettling and horrifying. So I I really think that I do not care if we go down in history as barbarians. It's just this extreme, immersive, almost this beautifully Brechtian film that just has everything I love. It delivered it up, but it's also a really important film because it really assaults this collective amnesia and it really uh, dives into what is increasingly dangerous today, which is just the reemergence of this kind of far-right nationalism. So I, I really just think it hits everything at once, and uh, which is what made it my favorite film of 2018. I also really love this film, so I basically agree with everything Chris has said. Though I will say that the, the charming devil I did not find so charming. <laughs> I, I thought the, the conversation between him and the main character was a great example of how whataboutism is a like, destructive rhetorical device. Oh, yeah. And it just kills all discussion, basically. And I thought, as well as all you said about the Brechtian aspects, and I didn't think of Godard, but you're, you're definitely right, the whole discussions on memory and what is it to memorialize something. I also think it well, it worked quite well as a character piece. I think the, the central character played by Johanna Jacob is a very interesting character of this woman who has to deal with this whole milieu, right, and sexual harassment, uh, more or less. I think that also worked quite well on this level. So yeah, a, a film uh, I, I really love. Well, I do not care if we go down in history as barbarians was a very unusual film. I absolutely love the title, by the way. I think that's a brilliant title for a film. <laughs> it didn't resonate with me as much as it did with uh, Chris or Matthew. I learned a lot from it about Romanian culture and history that was fascinating to find out about because there's things in the film that I had no idea about. One thing that was quite difficult for me was to understand the stance of the director at certain parts because there's so many meta meta elements going on you're not sure who he's poking fun at here whether it's the people who are ignorant of the past the people who are acting superior because they're embracing the past and there's just a lot of things going on that aren't quite clear to me now the ending was probably my favorite part the reenactment of of the past and it kind of brought back these images of the film Waiting for Guffman by Christopher Guest. Now, although this isn't a mockumentary, it kind of had that playful sense to it towards the end, and and I did enjoy that. So it was a a fascinating watch, but not one that I would consider among my favourites of the year. Oh, that's perfectly fair, Tom. And uh, for my part, this kind of way that it kind of pokes fun at everybody involved, that's the type of extra detachment that I think really worked there because uh, what makes people think it's less preachy because everyone is essentially put bare. But then you get that final uh, climax. And I think it's, it's really eager to discuss this history, but also discuss the reaction. And given where Romania is right now in terms of the political landscape as well, uh, I, I think what it really does is hold up a mirror to the society. And uh, it, it wants to see if people are comfortable with, with what they're seeing. And uh, at least for me, I, I think it does it really, really well. It definitely does do that very well, Chris. And it does make it uncomfortable when you think back to it because obviously it's quite a humorous 
situation that is presented. But then again, we're then acting kind of out of place in our reaction as the audience at the play are acting out of uh, line with their reaction. So it kind of plays on that and it makes you feel quite uncomfortable when you consider what the situation and what you're kind of finding amusing. So it is very interesting film. So I think that's a, that's a great way to recommend the film, Tom, because this film really hasn't gotten the exposure that it deserves. So I uh, hope that anyone listening to this uh, will be tempted to get around to it. Well, yes, it definitely is interesting hearing both of you discuss the I Do Not Care film, because when Chris gave us his list of top five films of the year, and I was looking at which ones I was going to watch, I was going, oh, two and a half hour film in Romanian. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to put that on my watch list, but that is definitely something that I will try and prioritize now. Really great to hear that, so I'll count that as a success. And on that note, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Remember to go to icmforum.com right now and uh, just share your favorite films from 2018. Tell us if you agree or disagree with our choices and why. And uh, yeah, hit us up. Let us know. So thank you all for listening and join us again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMForum.com.